When Brother Simeon was speaking about the presence of the Lord and the craving his soul has for the presence of the Lord, I thought of that passage often quoted where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet we're aware of many times in the Bible where people tasted and saw and they curled their noses at the very thing that seemed good to others. We remember that when David was bringing back the ark of God to the city of David, that he was rejoicing before the ark. He would take about six steps and he would make a sacrifice. And he was so full of joy, so full of thanksgiving. He was dancing and twirling and rejoicing before the Lord. Now some would say he was working himself up into a frenzy. Others would say he was transcending his flesh to honor God. But the Bible tells us in the sixth chapter of 1 Samuel that his wife, Michal, was sitting in the window looking down on him. Just that statement is interesting. She's looking down on him and she had some choice things. The first thing that came out of her mouth was sarcasm. And mockery is what the flesh is going to do when it encounters the Spirit because it can't deal with the Spirit honestly because the Spirit defeats it. So it's got to make a joke out of it. It's got to mock it. It's got to be sarcastic because it can't reckon with something completely outside its control. So Michal says, Oh, was not my Lord the King distinguishing himself this day? Before the maidservants. Do you hear the sarcasm? Oh, you were so distinguished today. She goes on and she says, You were behaving like a vulgar fellow. Now, this is an example of someone who finds the presence of God distasteful. Taste and see that the Lord ain't good, says Michal. You were behaving like a vulgar fellow. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Interesting way to put it. To encapsulate the nose-curling disdain and sneer that the flesh has. How distasteful. How vulgar. Amen. Have you ever read an event in the Bible and said to yourself, God, I wish I was there. Well, I have to warn you that if you have a sneering distaste for the presence of God as we experience it in this place tonight, you would have the exact same distaste that Michal felt in that moment of the ark's return. I remember someone recently talking to me, and I hadn't spoken to them personally, but they had been around some ministry where we had talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This has happened to me more than once. But with dripping contempt, they said, Oh, don't get me wrong. I do not want to speak in tongues. I do not want to receive the Spirit like that. Oh, wow, that's an, that's an interesting way to put it because I want a relationship with God. But that is an interesting way to put it. I was struck by the disdain, the contempt. 
at how vulgar we seemed to this person in their lofty, sanctimonious, ivory tower of superior righteousness. And I thought, wow, I wonder what the Lord hears when he hears that. We're told that we have been given something that angels long to look into. We're told that the Shekinah glory in the presence of God through the baptism of the Spirit is something the men of old longed to see and only saw it from a distance but died without having received it. And yet we curl our noses. Jesus stood in his most public display of exuberance and cried out on the last and greatest day of the feast, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says he spoke this concerning the Spirit. It is the most explosive, exuberant declaration of hope and promise and life that we see in his ministry. And I wonder how many were sitting around flow rivers? Ugh. I don't want that. There is a sick, perverted, shriveled, miserable, dehydrated, proud flesh that despises life, that despises the bounty of God's love, that holds in derision the very hope of the ages that we have been privileged to partake of. There is a mikal inside of every one of us. And if you don't get that me call off the throne, then her curse will be your curse. From that day forward, she was barren. You want to talk about a fruitless Christianity? I want you to look at the lip-curling, sneering Christianity that hates the things of the spirit and worships the things of the carnal mind. That is a Christianity that is Michal and is as barren as she is. David said, before the maidservants, I was indeed esteemed, but only in your eyes was I disgraced. Remember when the Lord was speaking of his sacrifice and he begins to say that he will be delivered over to the Jews and be crucified, but he will rise on the third day and Peter seems not to hear that last part, but to fixate on the first part. He doesn't like this certainty of pending death as heroic sympathy or camaraderie from a friend. He steps forward and he begins to correct the Lord and tell him that death will not be necessary. And what does the Lord say to him? You are a stumbling block or an offense, same thing, to me. Put this stone in my rearview mirror. Get this out of my path because it's going to be hard enough 
to go by myself down this path called Calvary with no support when all forsake me. So don't come here with your phony religiosity and your shallow love and tell me I don't have to do God's will. Get it behind me. And he calls his closest confidant and the man who's just received the keys to the kingdom, he calls him Satan. Get thou behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are a stumbling block to me because. Because why? Because the best translation, I believe, says you savor. You savor the things that be of man rather than the things that be of God. Satan uses us in the mode of self-preservation. What is savoring? How many of you have ever enjoyed a good bowl of bluebell and you carve it away and at that last bit you're just splitting that bite in two? It means to enjoy, to relish, to take delight in the things that be of man. But you don't have the same delight, the same relish, the same joy in the things that be of God. You see, if he had had an appetite for the things of God, he would have heard resurrection. <laughs> what? But I will rise on the third day. Lord, could we talk about this? But Christians today are inclined to skim right over the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit because of their distaste for the crucifixion of the flesh in repentance. The Lord says, I've got a life for you. I've got a fullness for you. I've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. I've got brothers and sisters for you. In his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And the carnal Christian, the Mikal Christian says, did you hear him talk about death? No, says the one who savors the things of God. I heard him mention it, but I primarily heard him talking about a life and a, a resurrection and a power that I really need in my life. No, 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 no. He said he's got to die and you do too. He said you had to take up your cross and follow him. The carnal Christian hears only that part. <sighs> they don't like it. They are the goats to the slaughter. Ever wondered what a goat would say on its way to the slaughter? I think it would start talking to you if it could and arguing with you, reasoning with you. Come on now. <laughs> I know you think you have to do this, but you know it's kind of a barbaric thing to do. And... Uh, you could let me go and nobody would know the difference. And how are you going to look? You know, your hands covered in blood. You know, there's a flesh in us that wants to reason its way off the cross. And yet you're either going to make that sacrifice or you're going to be robbed of that life that would come on the other side of the sacrifice. You just think about the things that you experience in the presence of God's people. And why don't you just earmark the things that are most distasteful to you. Let's just go ahead and make a mental list right here and now. Certain kind of worship, earmarked. Certain kind of testimony of abandon, 
where you're not sure what's going to happen, earmark, okay? Certain kind of prayer that transcends oneself and just looks terrifying, earmark that. Let's just make a list of all the things you hate most and ask yourself who's hating it. Is it the child of God in you? Or is it that goat of the flesh that just wants to avoid the cross? Is it that one who savors the things that be of man rather than the things that be of God? You see, either that goat is going to live and your life in God is going to wither away and die. Or you're going to find the grace to put to death that goat with all his reasoning, with all his intimidation, with all his pride. You're going to put him to death for the worthiness, for God's worthiness, and for your liberation. Your flesh is opposed to humility, but God is opposed to pride. So you're going to have to make a decision who's going to win that battle of oppositions. Now, to be carnally minded is death. Now, what does carnal mindedness look like? In your life, in my life, do we want to avoid the death he's referring to there? When he just makes that statement, to be carnally minded is death. What does it mean to be carnally minded? What does a carnal minded person look like because that person is in death? Shouldn't we know what it looks like? Doesn't it mean to savor the things that be of man and to use your head to rationalize it? Self-preservation. Do you see the death in Peter's exchange? Was that carnal mindedness? And yet, it looked a lot like love, didn't it? Seriously, didn't it look a lot like love? If you heard I had a terminal condition and you came up and told me I wasn't going to die, I would say that you probably said that out of love, right? So it looks a lot like love. But it's so fixated on avoiding sacrifice. So fixated on preserving natural things, fleshly things. This carnal existence, that it is focusing on it to the exclusion of the life of God found in the resurrection of His Holy Spirit. So how would I look carnally minded in my daily life? Well, just to operate with confidence in the calculations and conclusions of your head without the Spirit. Now that's death, brothers and sisters. That's death. That's not just the path to death. That's death. That's bringing hell into this world. That's introducing the death of hell into your life. That's all you have to do is just live in this mind. Apart from the Spirit. Now if you really believe that to be carnally minded was death, would it not become your life's consuming compulsion to escape the ruts and dictates the lies and perspective, the doubts and fears of your carnal mind. And if you thought for a minute you could transcend that carnal mind by moving into the realm of the Spirit and starting a new reality through prayer, through praise, 
Wouldn't you want to build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit to keep yourself in the love of God? If you knew it was death, and if you knew what your carnal thinking does to the promises of God under your nose, what would you not do to escape those deep ruts between your ears? You see, we want repentance to be done and dusted in one grand gesture. We want to give a public confession and feel like it's behind us. We want to pray one great time and feel like we're past that and say, ah, surely the bitterness of death is past. As that wretched King Agag said when Saul wouldn't put him to death. We want to even make a commitment in baptism and say, I thought I put this behind me. No, your cross is before you every day of your life. Take it up every single day and follow him. Isn't that what the song says? The cross before me, the world behind me. We want it to be done with because we still savor that life that is really death that God is asking us to surrender. We're still invested in the identity, the pride, the survival of that goat that resists sacrifice. Brother Simeon told me today, and he's so transparent with us, I thought it would be helpful. But he said that in his coming out of the world, straight out of prison, straight off of addiction, straight off of years of chronic captivity to the flesh. He said that when he went to work at the shop, that there were numerous times when he would be evaluating himself and thinking he was walking in his commitment and that somebody was just terribly unjust. And that he would have, in fact, derailed and lost his way had he not had someone in his life who would evaluate him and whose evaluation he would trust. So I want to ask you, can the flesh that is supposed to be dying self-evaluate? Can the flesh that is supposed to be dying evaluate whether it's dead? Is it, in fact, necessary, like we talked about today, for you to come to such a fundamental distrust in yourself that you give up and consciously forbid self-evaluation anymore? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who do justify yourselves. Now, if Brother Simeon, when he first started four years ago, when push came to shove, if he had a rub in his workplace and he had come to me and he had told me the rub and I had given him a shoulder to cry on, would you have the victory that you have today?
Or if he had not come to me, but merely judged himself in the sight of his boss and said, I know this is unfair. I know this is wrong. Would he have the victory that he has today? So there had to be a mirror in his life that he could trust. More than one. Many, in fact. And he had to come and stand in the mirror of the unveiled face of his brothers and sisters. And what does James call that mirror? The perfect law. Let's rephrase that. The truth that makes people free. That's what a law of liberty is. It's a truth that's so powerful, it's like a command. It's a law. If he was willing to come and sit down with me every single week and talk, or with dad, or with anybody else in his life, and bring all of his stories, and then look in the mirror and see something ugly, see something that needed to die, then you know what happened? He started getting free. And if only he had broken the mirror, preserved maybe a little shard that he nailed to the wall where he could only get a little glint every now and again, then he could have preserved that inner goat. He could have preserved that flesh. And just think, Jesus wouldn't have to be the Lord of his life. He wouldn't be testifying at the beginning of this meeting how much he craves the presence of God. Just think how unhappy, how miserable he would be if he had just stuck with that baloney self-evaluation. Can the flesh evaluate its own death? Is that the most absurd thing you've ever heard? In my view, it is. Flesh, talk to me. When do you think I'm dead enough? Well, do you have a hangnail? Yes, yes, two, in fact. That'll do. Seriously, the one who's designated for destruction is supposed to tell us when he's dead? Repentance requires a body. Repentance necessitates the faces of your brothers and sisters and words of a friend that would tell you this is the same old rot and you know it and I know it. You're just deceiving yourself. Harken back to what Brother Dan ministered on Sunday. Now, if repentance is nothing else, it is arriving at an irreparable distrust in self. Do you have that? Do you have an irreparable distrust in self and its evaluations, its opinions, its perspectives, its judgments? Do you have that? I was thinking about it. Sometimes you will encounter people who behave as if they're repented, as if they're walking in repentance. And yet the sharpness and the finality of their assessments of others is astounding. And I thought about it the other day. I thought, you know, I've seen people falsely accused. Men in this room, white-haired, elders you esteem and look up to. I've seen them lied about. Men not in this room. 
I've seen their reputation besmirched. I've seen their words twisted. I've seen genuine sacrifice that they poured out for others thrown back in their face. And what's interesting is I encountered less defensiveness and less certainty in the flesh from those saints and pillars of God who were legitimately wronged than I encounter from these barely converted, barely on their feet folks who think that they're walking in repentance. I know elders in the church who if wrongly accused by someone with obvious malice and hatred have said things like, now this is a quote, you brothers help me. If any of this is true, I want to make it right. I will do whatever I can. And I want you to contrast that to this certainty that you encounter in young people who have no fruit, who've never walked out repentance, and yet are fast on the draw to pop, 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 shoot down criticism that before God is absolutely sound and right. One shows through the meekness of wisdom that what he does is done in God. When you are broken, when you savor no flesh, you can be like David. When that nimkin poop started hollering insults at him, he's like, well, maybe the Lord's dealing with me for something I don't remember. There is this humility. There is this willingness. But when you are invested in that goat image, you pull up your dukes and start going tip for tat. It's like the loudest scream, I'm not repented, that I could ever hear. We can't discern ourselves automatically. Now here's the good news. Weren't we saying today that by listening, by looking in the mirror and getting that feedback and learning time after time after time, what started happening? Discernment started coming, didn't it? So now the things that once totally peeved you, they wouldn't even ruffle. They wouldn't even upset you. Because you've learned through reason of use, you've had your senses sharpened to discern good and evil right here. You're like, I know the sound of that goat. You see, the devil tells you you got two options. You just silently simmer and know that you're right, but don't say anything because nobody will trust you. There's one demonic option. Or you tell them. You just tell them how wrong they are. Oh, there's a third. Could you humble yourself? Could you say, I am a chronic defender of this thing that is killing me? I am the defense attorney of this carnal mind that is death, and I have got to lose it. Jesus, will you set me free? Amen. Would you cultivate in me an appetite 
a love for the things that be of God rather than the things that be of my self-preservation. Thank you, Jesus. I once had somebody who I was helping tell me this. They said, do you know when I'm getting in the wrong state of mind and I'm falling snare to my defensiveness? And I said, yes. And they said, would you tell me you're crossing the bridge right now? If you do that, I'm going to make a commitment that I'm just going to stop. Amen. What that person was saying is exactly what this one was saying. Could you be my mirror? Could you help me evaluate with love but with unbiased truth what I cannot discern in my flesh about my flesh? And you know what both of those people and so many others were finding? The perfect law of liberty. Liberty from bad habits. Liberty from slavery to going down the same ruts. Brothers and sisters, if you're pressing into repentance, I challenge you with all the weight I can. You must identify those in your life whose evaluation you can and will trust. And that trust is not, I promise to trust their evaluation so I'm not going to tell them how wrong they are. I'm going to put to death and actively kill this defensiveness that is telling me how wrong they are. Do you see the difference? There are people with conditions. Well, there are people who have epilepsy. Some of my own family. And in the world, this condition can become so great that they will train a dog to detect the invisible but nonetheless discernible changes in the body that precede an epileptic fit. And a big old dog like a Great Dane will kind of be walking next to the person. And that dog has learned to feel the difference. It's a change that we can't even put our fingers on. And that dog will nudge its owner. And that owner will know to get down, to lay on a bench, to get in a position to sustain the violence of the seizure in a way that does not harm them permanently. Now, if you would just give your brothers and sisters as much trust as some people give dogs, and you would just say to them, when I start pitching my fit, when I start going into that zone that has frustrated my progress, made a fool out of me my entire life, would you please bump into me? And I'm just going to promise you right now, even though you might feel like a dog in that moment, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get my mind in a different place. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to cross the bridge into another disaster. You'd be able to walk out your repentance. 
Amen. Repentance is not something that happens in a room like this. Repentance is something that starts in a room like this. Repentance is not something complete in a tank. Repentance is committed. The process of repentance is pledged in this tank. And you say, God, I'm calling down the judgment of the cross on my old man. If I ever become his defender, if I ever become his advocate, his explainer ever again. I want to be crucified with Christ. I don't want it to be me who lives, but Christ who lives within me. But there's a strong flesh inside of so many of us. Well, let's just change that. Inside of all of us. Self-preservation is the most common, formidable force in the universe. We all share it. And the Lord will not steal your life from you. But you've got to get to this place of fundamental distrust. Where you say, God, my confidence in my perspective is irreparably damaged. God is my witness. I have seen it time and time again. The godly whose works are the most to be praised, who have the least fault in their lives, when they are falsely accused, they are the most lowly and the slowest to their own defense. They are the most willing to see that a flagrant hater might have something true. They're the ones you'll find to the wee hours of the morning, praying with tears in the sanctuary over accusations of covenant breakers to see if there be any wicked way in me so that God would lead them in the way everlasting. Would you promise to do several things? Despise that McCall in you that despises the beauty of God's liberating glory in his presence. Would you promise to identify the mirrors in your life? The brothers or sisters who will give you that unflinching evaluation. And will you commit? Will you decide ahead of time, I can trust this person's character and their love for me enough that they're not going to tell me something that is not true. And if you cannot find that person, you do not belong here. But will you promise to find those mirrors in your life and commit that you will not let your flesh evaluate its own death? Amen. And will you promise to believe and act as if the most dangerous, persistent, existential threat to your spiritual survival is between your ears, your carnal mind, and the pride of its own perspective, the certainty in its own perspective. I promise you, whatever your battle is, you get the victory. There's not a person in this room who can't identify with what I'm saying. Every single one of us know the process that we're talking about. But if you think you can't get a victory, like Brother Mark Hill said, it's a lie. God will snap you right out of that pit if you will just make these changes. You don't ever have to go back here again. But when you do, know that you have no one to blame but yourself.